Hello and welcome to APAC Weekly, where we bring you a showcase of our conversations on the APAC network. Coming up this week, urban farming is scaling up. Australian research sheds new light on human history. New technology could stop another pandemic. With space in our cities at a premium, innovations around urban manufacturing and food production are gaining pace with indoor vertical farming, one of the first initiatives to really take hold. With climate change impacts, food security and supply chain disruptions all creating a sense of uncertainty for our future, is this the future of cropping? University of Queensland's Paul Gautier is Professor of Protected Cropping at the Queensland Alliance of Agriculture and Food Innovation, and he joins me now. Welcome, Professor. How can urban vertical farming ever scale to the extent that it can make a meaningful contribution to food supply and demand? Well, I think um, vertical farming is, I will say, part of the future in a way that we need to scale it up. And as you mentioned a little bit, climate change is going to challenge a lot of our food system. And it's not necessarily about um, how is it possible to do it, is is more how do we, can we make it work? Because I think one of the major issues that we are facing, we have a challenge, which is increasing food production by 70% by 2050 to be able to feed the world. And unfortunately, the amount of land available to grow this food is decreasing. And so we have to make it work. And a lot of cities across the world have already taken this, um, I will say, stream of research and stream of production. And it's actually working pretty well in some cities, like, you know, right outside New York City, there is a, a lot of different vertical farming feeding the cities, and it actually works pretty well. So there is a, a challenge still. It's a new, I will say, technology or a new way of growing crops in a certain way. But it's, you know, it's the scalability and the scaling up is what uh, will make it work. Well, you've spoken about the demand to feel, feed the planet over the next uh, decades. And, and food security is becoming an increasingly serious issue for many nations. How much is this accelerating the pace of innovation and research? I think it's a, it has been a, a really booster for the entire uh, industry. What you could see is over the past three years, the world has faced an unprecedented pandemic that nobody were ex actually expecting. And what we realize is how uh, dependent on our food import and how dependent on other countries, many countries are at the moment. And it was very, very challenging. And now with what's going on in, in Eastern Europe, I think it's, you know, a lot of people are questioning their own food security and how they can be independent. Some countries import up to 97% of their food. So all of that are really boost up the industry because people have realized that, yes, there is an energy challenge with vertical farming, but they can eventually feed their people. And, and one, of, one of the things that I think it's considering, when people are starving, um, you know, what's the cost of, of being able to feed these people if you have the capacity of doing it? Now, the University of Queensland, who you work with, is offering two scholarships for PhD students to join your team of researchers. So what can the students expect in terms of where this research is heading? My intention with this research is to go to the next step. 
The reason why vertical farming got started very quickly is because, well, of course, the cost of LEDs were part of the of the of the reason, but also because the knowledge of growing lettuce hydroponically was already there. And so, what I'm thinking of doing, and what my team is is going to focus on, is to look at what are the crop of the future what kind of crop can we grow indoor what are the next one i'm not talking about the ones that the industry are going to release in the next two or three years i'm talking about the ones the industry will need in five and ten years when climate change will be so bad that we may not be able to grow bananas anymore in in, in queensland or maybe we won't be able to grow some crops and or not even importing them and there is a lot of cost associated with importing at the moment and some countries like you know like coffee or, or vanilla or, or, or cacao are decreasing their production across the world because of climate change and because of all the consequences. So in five or 10 years, will, will the world accept not to have coffee to drink in the morning or will the, will the world accept not to have a piece of chocolate anymore? So I think that's what my team is going to focus on. We are going to focus on all these interesting crops that nobody have really looked into so far of growing indoor at scale and also uh, profitably. So that's kind of things that we are looking into and developing um, for, for Australia and for the rest of the world. How does Asia Pacific, for example, compare to North America and Europe? You were talking about Princeton and New Jersey, not far from New York. You're originally from Nantes in France. Uh, so where's APAC compared to the rest of the world? So I will say the, the, first, the first one, the first country leading all the development, R&D and everything is the US. The US had a very specific uh, agricultural system, which leads them to think about vertical farming as a solution for the future. And as the Asian Pacific is, is, is catching on, China have been working on vertical farming for quite a while, um, but we don't necessarily hear too much about it. And then we also have, you know, countries like Singapore or South Korea or even Japan that have been looking into vertical farming for quite a while. Where do you think we'll be in 10 years time? Will this industry have matured to become a major supplier of crops, the crops that the world desperately will need in the decades to come? I think it does. I think for sure. I, I, you know, when I started working on vertical farming back in 2015, People were questioning, is even vertical farming a thing? People were questioning the fact that maybe vertical farming is never going to work in the rest of the world. Well, today it's everywhere. And so I think the industry is really growing extremely fast. And I will say, you know, if the old continent, right, Europe, have been taking out on vertical farming, that really means something because Europeans tend to be a little bit uh, taking distance on a lot of this new technology and, and catching up a little bit longer. But the fact that they are taking on very quickly now on all this technology means a lot. And I think, you know, by 2050, we'll have 2 billion more people to feed on this planet. And unfortunately, today, we already have 800, 800 to 900 million people already not eating enough food. And so if you add 2 billion to that, Vertical farming have to be part of the solution. There is no question about it. And I think to be clear, and because we, I have this question very often, vertical farming is not going to replace traditional farming. We need traditional farming to continue improving and to continue doing what traditional farming has been doing. We just need vertical farming to add up uh, to be able to feed the 2 billion people that we are going to add on this planet by 2050.
The co-founder of the cryptocurrency Ethereum is focused on data sharing in an open and decentralized manner for the benefit of all. His passion is contributing for social impact and specifically to help prevent another pandemic. Vitalik Buterin gifting the largest known cryptocurrency donation to an Australian institution, sending over five million Australian dollars worth to the University of New South Wales. The fund supporting the development and deployment of an open source tool, which provides pandemic early warning signals. For more, I'm joined by the developer of EpiWatch, Professor Rainer McIntyre, who is the head of the Kirby Institute's biosecurity program at the University of New South Wales. Professor, thank you so much for joining Joining us today, talk to us a little bit about EpiWatch and how it works. So EpiWatch is an early warning system that basically harnesses open source data, so information that's out there in vast quantities, whether it be social media or news feeds or other, you know, open source data. It harnesses that data using artificial intelligence, so a series of algorithms. Uh, to generate signals or early warnings of potentially serious epidemics. Now, if something like that had been present that could have picked up the COVID pandemic, for example, before it had spread outside of China, then, you know, COVID would have been like SARS-1, something that was, you know, brief, but then relegated to the archives of history. But instead, it spread rapidly around the world. Generally, um, the way we pick up epidemics is through traditional health surveillance, which relies on health systems, doctors, or laboratories notifying diseases. And that has a bit of a time delay to it. So we're trying to get the signals earlier than that, which can then prompt an investigation and earlier diagnosis to pick up epidemics right at their genesis because epidemics grow exponentially. It's, uh, you know, this is why we've seen supply chains collapse and hospital systems collapse because things can change in a matter of days or weeks. Mm. You can go from business as usual to severe um, workforce absences and um, health systems overload. So you don't have a lot of time. Uh, you've got to act very quickly, which is why the early detection really matters. Can you paint the picture for us of how this would have worked if it had been in place in Wuhan? So if it had been in place, we might have seen a signal for severe pneumonia of unknown cause um, sometime earlier than December the 31st, which was the date that it was officially notified to WHO. And um, that meant that the, the whole world would have had earlier warning and may have been able to prevent um, the pandemic from seeding in multiple different countries and spreading. Does it replace the formal reporting mechanism or do you see it replacing the formal reporting mechanism that, that we have at the moment? No, no, not at all. Formal reporting is still essential. It's an essential part of surveillance, but it's not timely. What this does is provide an earlier kickstart to the whole process of um, investigating and mitigating epidemics. So instead of waiting you know, maybe a few weeks or a month or two months maybe before the notifications land on the desk of someone in the health department, 
you're getting a signal from the very source, from the village, for example, where the epidemic might be starting based on what new, local news agencies are reporting long before it, it becomes um, known to health authorities. So to use the, the China example, for example, you might have had news reports or, or data from inside, you know, from, from doctors or from hospitals that would have indicated that there is something out there that, uh, you know, doctors at the time weren't familiar with. That's right, that's right. And when you're looking for an unknown disease, you look for clinical syndromes. And there's a um, limited range of different clinical syndromes that a new infection might present with. And it basically relates to just different organs in the body. It could be pneumonia. It could be something to do with the brain, like encephalitis, or something to do with the nervous system, like paralysis. It could be um, gastrointestinal, like vomiting, diarrhea, nausea. Um, it could be rash and fever. It could be hemorrhage, like something like Ebola. So the system, EpiWatch also searches for syndromes so that we can pick up uh, clinical syndromes of diseases that have not yet been diagnosed. What is the timeline, Professor? You know, where, where are you at the moment and, and talking about where you hope to be with the, the various languages and so forth and the distribution of the tool? What's the timeline for getting it out there globally? So I think... Um, in terms of the the what we're calling the Shiba Inu OSINT initiative, which is the the project funded by Bitalik Buterin, it's um, probably we'd like to get the the objectives of that met in the next two years. Um, but there's a bigger five year plan to really expand the global footprint of EpiWatch and also to build capacity in in um, public health workforce for utilising digital technology. The interesting thing is that AI is used very widely in clinical medicine, but public health is still quite old-fashioned. The way we do surveillance in public health, which is disease detection, is quite old-fashioned. So we want to also work in training and capacity building um, through field epidemiology programs around the world um, to, to develop a new generation of digitally literate public health workforce. New light has been shed on human evolution after a 380 million year old heart, stomach, intestine and liver from an ancient jawed fish was discovered. The fossils were found in the Kimberley region of Western Australia and have been studied using neutron beams and x-rays. Lead researcher John Curtin, distinguished professor Kate Trinjastic joins us now. Professor, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Tell us a little bit about this incredible discovery. Well, it's been a long time coming. Uh, we first started this research over 10 years ago um, and we got incredibly excited when we were in the field and we cracked open a limestone nodule and saw a series of, of rings which we knew was the intestine. But what happened then was we realized if we prepared it in the normal way that we'd dissolve the soft tissue away. And so we put it in a scanner thinking that we were only going to get uh, a little piece of the intestine and we're absolutely amazed to find that this, um, this nodule held the entire organs of a 380 million year old fish. Mm. So aside from this being an incredible discovery, what are the new evolutionary clues that, that you're so passionate about? Well, it, it tells us 
that uh, these very ancient and very primitive fish were actually very complex. So usually when we think of primitive animals, we think that they're simple. And so that kind of completely overturned that idea. The other thing was that there was always a theory that the evolution of jaws didn't just happen by itself, that uh, it was a whole group of things that changed, which was the heart moving into the, the back of the throat, jaws evolving, and also our neck um, evolving at the same time. And this is the first fossil evidence that shows that those three things were grouped together at the very start of our, our evolution. So how does one come about uh, finding something like this? I mean, it's very rare, obviously, as you've pointed out in your research, to find a 3D preserved heart. So how did you actually physically come across this? Well, a lot of it was, it was a bit of luck, um, to be quite honest. Um, we, we went out, we knew there was soft tissue, we were particularly looking for soft tissue, uh, but I, you know, when, when I found it, we had no idea that we were actually going to find a fossil heart. And it wasn't until we put it in the scanner and then started to go through all of those individual slices that we started to realize what a magnificent discovery that we had. And as I said, we started with knowing that we had an intestine, then we got excited because we found the stomach. And then as we moved up, we found a liver. And, you know, the cherry on the, on the icing was, basically that we we found a heart but yeah we we had no idea it was there when we first started the search how much more studying will you be doing of, of this particular fossil what, what's next well um one of the really fortunate things about this was it wasn't just one we actually found five fossils with soft tissue and two of them had hearts so that was um that's pretty amazing in itself we're going to go back and we're going to keep looking because there are things that we haven't found. Um, I have one specimen that I know has got the eyes preserved, which we haven't scanned or looked at yet. And I'm hoping that we could find a brain. So, so how long do you think this will take? I mean, obviously you're hoping to find it. You don't know that you will. But, but what sort of timeline um, until we speak to you again and talk to you about your next discovery? Well, I hope it's not as long as the last one, uh, but, you know, we're probably looking at a couple of years because uh, when we're looking at these scans, we examine each scan one by one and uh, it's, it's very time consuming to do that. The other thing is we want to be sure. Uh, and, um, and as I said, the, the great thing about this was that um, one of the reasons it did take so long is that we made sure that we have more than one specimen so that we could be sure. So I think this is going to require a little bit more field work, um, a lot more scanning and uh, a lot more sitting in front of a, a computer looking at fish slice by slice. Facial recognition technology is used almost everywhere these days, including law enforcement, immigration, education, retail and healthcare. But along with the benefits come significant concerns, largely around privacy and misuse, prompting calls for much stronger regulation. Well, Dr. Dennis Desmond joins us now, lecturer of cyber intelligence and cybercrime investigations at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Dennis, welcome. Should we be concerned about the increasing use of facial recognition technology? Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, it, there are several security and privacy concerns. Uh, privacy specifically is uh, who's collecting the data, how's that data being stored, whether or not it's being stored in an encrypted format, 
uh, with whom it's being shared, how it's being used perhaps to uh, uh, approve loans or insurance or maybe other benefits and whether or not it's actually being misused as well as even its accuracy. Uh, is it recognizing who you actually are or is there an error in the recognition process? It's interesting, isn't it, how it could be used for loans when we're not actually even submitting to the use of it. So how do we marry up the idea that people can be searching us, but we've not given them permission to do so? So there, there's several approaches. First of all is uh, legislation has to change. Unfortunately, the Australian uh, Privacy Principles of Privacy Act don't really apply uh, broadly to facial recognition, collection, use, or even informed consent, which is critical to any kind of personal or sensitive data collection. Uh, for this to work, consumers have to be made aware that the information that is being collected is being done so with their permission. And they also should give consent on how that information is used. Um, as we've seen with later latest data breaches, there's significant concern about our data even being held by commercial entities. Uh, we can do everything right. We can have our passwords correct. We can make sure that we're secure and safe. But when someone else is holding that data that's considered sensitive or could be used for other things, such as to create additional accounts, uh, those companies have to ensure that they're in compliance with the safety and security protocols that have been mandated for the retention, storage and use of that data. Is it not the case that we do that, that, that when we sign up to Facebook, it, uh, I'm kind of under the impression that we, we pretty much sign away our identity as it is. We, we tick that box that says you can use that and pretty much sell it to anyone you want. Well, and that is problematic. End user license agreements and terms of service often are extremely vague or very, very long and detailed. And not everybody, when you go to a website, is gonna to wanna to sit and read a 20 or 30 page HILA or TOS that says, yes, we can steal your data, take it, sell it, and use it for whatever we want. And that's a problem. Uh, and that's where informed consent comes in. So where we are consenting to things like that, on Instagram and Facebook, we're ticking the box saying you can, you can look at my photos. We're not consenting to things like walking into a supermarket and having our, our face photographed. How do we deal with that kind of situation? Again, it, it, um, it's an agreement between the consumer and the provider. For instance, you know, facial recognition technology has been in use in casinos and pubs, uh, gambling sites for years. Uh, part of it is to reduce the criminal element and part of it also is used for internal use for repeat customers and for identity verification purposes. And certainly we understand we want to live and work in a very safe environment. The problem comes into where companies are taking this data and using it at will for whatever purposes to include marketing and uh, possibly even for uh, being able to ban customers, taking a law enforcement approach in the private sector when this really should be the purview of law enforcement and security services. And I think that again, informed consent, when we arrive on site, we need to be made aware that yes, we're collecting your data. This is how the data is stored, where it's stored, this is how it's going to be used and with whom we're going to share this data. Uh, in the future. Plus, how long are we going to hold this data? Is it forever or is it just as long as you're a customer on the premises? And I think that's important. And even if we consented to all this and even if we're open to, to the idea of, of having our facial recognition stored, how accurate is it? How, is, there, is there a case for, for being a mistaken identity or someone posing as you? 
the algorithms have certainly gotten better and more accurate. There's still some challenges based on lighting, based on complexion, based on uh, the profile or position of the individual. But again, we would expect that that technology would improve. But until it gets there, there's certainly some challenges uh, that concern us. Um, one of the other sort of the science fiction approach uh, technologies now that we're seeing is being able to reverse engineer an image based on DNA collection. Uh, so if law enforcement collects DNA from a crime scene and then they're using AI to generate an image of what that person looks like, they can then use that and match that against a wide range of images in a database. Well, obviously an artist's rendering is not going to be spot on and therefore the likelihood of misidentification is significant. And that's a concern. What can we all be doing in the meantime just to make sure that we're finding out where we should be consenting and, and checking the I don't consent box if, if that's what we should be doing? Uh, it depends. I think if you're online with social media, uh, you can certainly not use your image where possible. Uh, and I know that's really hard because we live in such you know, web trio, <laughs> social environment, peer to peer. Um, you know, don't allow people to for instance, post images of your children and don't allow the tagging of those images with names. And that is a lot on which these companies rely on to harvest the images for the backend databases. Uh, use an avatar instead, uh, which is useful. Uh, the other is, of course, you know, pay attention to your surroundings. Look to see if there's any notification signs. And don't be afraid to go to the manager of a store and say, I see that you're collecting facial recognition, uh, you're running facial recognition software and you're collecting images. How are you using these images? Uh, what are you doing with the images? Who's actually doing the analysis? Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.